Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Despite a rapidly improving economy with recession fears fading, the Federal Reserve has again raised short-term borrowing rates to the highest level in 22 years with the European Central Bank following suit. A huge earnings week as Airbus, Boeing, General Dynamics, Heiko, Henselt, Hexel, L3 Harris, Leonardo, MTU, Northrop Grumman, RTX, Safran, Teledyne Technologies, and Textron, among others, uh, reported. Uh, and it was in an earnings call that Northrop revealed it told the U.S. Air Force it wouldn't bid on the next generation air dominance program as a prime contractor, but as a supplier. Northrop would, however, pursue the Navy's FAXX contract. We understood that three demonstrators were built for the NGAD competition and that two had moved ahead in the program. The question is whether the outcome of those demonstrations impacted Northrop's decision not to bid. And RTX told analysts that about 1,200 geared turbofan engines by its Pratt & Whitney unit and their partners need accelerated inspections over worries that the powdered metal used in the innovative motors could be deteriorating. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners uh, in London, and Richard Ablafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy coming to us this week from the Bali Bureau. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. It wouldn't be a weekend without you. Yeah, it's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks as always, Vago. Even in Bali, it wouldn't be a weekend without the show. Thank you. Especially in the middle of the night. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, thank you for your service uh, to uh, our uh, listeners. Um, Ron, uh, I want to start with uh, markets. There's a lot of uh, earnings news uh, to discuss, but sort of at a fundamental level, how did the group perform? Uh, interest rates going up, even as recession fears are declining, even the banks who are sort of most worried about that are now saying the economy looks like it's going to do pretty well. How did the group perform, uh, given that it was also a very, very big earnings week? Yeah, so a, a couple of factors, like you mentioned, um, you know, the Fed raised rates, but it, I think the broad consensus now uh, in the market is that the economy is headed for sort of the unicorn scenario of a soft landing, right? So hopefully that's how it plays out. Um, on the week, uh, the S&P was up about a percent. And as you mentioned, there was just sort of mountains and mountains of earnings in our sector. So we can't hit everything, but I'll kind of hit some of the highlights. Uh, the better performers in the week were both uh, Boeing and, and Textron. They both reported um, strong quarters. Boeing on the heels of a lot of cash uh, and Textron uh, strength kind of across the business. But both those shares were up uh, almost 13% on the week, uh, outperforming the market pretty handily. Um, the defense stocks, for the most part, underperformed. Um, of those, the one that underperformed the most was uh, L3 Harris. And that was on, I think, concerns around the Aerojet rocket, de- rocket, Aerojet rocket Dine deal actually closing, right. and then some numbers in the quarter, right? The margins were a little squishy. Broadly speaking, what we saw from the defense companies were um, good top line growth. You know, North, Northrop in the quarter, I think, was the champ with 9% top line growth um, in revenue, which is, as you know, for a defense company, pretty gigantic. Uh, but margins um, squishy, I guess that's the best way to say it, kind of across the sector. And, and you know, different companies had different levels of top line growth, but broadly we had top line growth with kind of squishy margins. On the commercial aerospace side, very, very strong uh, aftermarket numbers. Uh, GE reported, I think it was last week, and you know, their aftermarket numbers were really strong. 
um, you know, Raytheon's aftermarket numbers are good. All the, basically anybody who's a, who's a player in the aftermarket is doing quite well. Uh, and then we all sort of know what's going on in the OE market. And like you highlighted, really the the, the big stock moving news of the week was uh, on on Raytheon, which ended the week down almost ten percent on right. yet another hiccup on on the GTF, and it can be attributed largely to that. All the margins in their defense business weren't great, but it wouldn't have been down 10% on that. Uh, just uh, uh, just really quickly, I wanted to ask, yeah. right, 9% is a lot of sales growth. What was uh, driving that, right? I mean, you could see a lot of stuff across Textron's whole portfolio uh, and and sort of propelling that. But what were, you know, 9% is a lot, as you noted. What was driving uh, Northrop Spike? Yeah, they had um, their space business group, a, a bunch, you know, mid-teens. And then also uh, they, they, the the you know, the business that feeds into, and we've talked about this in, in the past, that feeds into selling, you know, the subsystems that go on, the systems that are uh, replenishing uh, inventories from stuff that was sent to the Ukraine. You also saw a lot of growth there, but basically across the business, you saw growth. And and I think you can generalize that to most defense contractors that, um, you know, the outlays from the U.S. Treasury really started to rise. We saw that most notably in the last couple of months, and that's starting to flow through to the contractors, which which makes a ton of sense to actually see those correlated. They don't always correlate, but to see them correlated now. Um, and then there's a couple other interesting things. Um, one of the things I tend to track is the SPAC index. So it's just a broad index of SPACs. And you know, why I like to look at that, it's a good feel for a measurement of risk appetite in the market. And, and since May, the SPAC index is up 20%. So, and, and what that means is, you know, this whole you know, thing we've been talking about that the market's starting to really, you know, you know feel uh, and price in uh, soft landing, that's an indicator of that, um, that the market's getting a little bit more comfortable with risk. When you look at the 10-year yield, it's been hovering out for, you know, probably as long as we've been doing this podcast, around 4%, still is, it's just a smidge below four. The VIX index was really low. So, you know, it's the, the, the fear index, really low. The market's you know getting more comfortable with risk, and oil prices have been trickling higher, right? Brent crude's in mid eighties, and WTI is above eighty now. So, and, and all those indicators are kind of like, okay, the economy is doing okay, and and we'll, we'll probably do better than maybe many people thought just a year ago. Um, and and I think that gives you a good summary of where where we are in the market. Uh, Sash, uh, let me give you uh, a chance to talk about uh, Europe broadly from an earnings perspective. We're going to dive a little bit deeper uh, into the individual performance, but give us a sense, uh, Joe, like Ron did, what we saw in European markets uh, and how the group performed. Yeah, well, look, I mean, we had a uh, we had a ton of results uh, from European stocks this week. Okay, in that, uh, it included Hensolt, Leonardo, MTU, um, uh, Safran, um, and Rolls-Royce also pre-announced. Um, just to give you an idea of quite what a volatile week it was and, and the degree to which companies genuinely surprised on the up and downside of the 20 uh, odd stocks that we follow, um, uh, eight of them moved by more, uh, their share prices moved by more than 5% during the week. The biggest move by far was Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce positively pre announced um, consensus. Uh, uh, expectations for Rolls-Royce's operating profit, and they're going to report next week, was 328 million. They're going to do 680 million, twice as strong, and the full year is going to be strong. And actually, this is exactly what Ron was saying about uh, General Electric. The, the spares business is coming through. Uh, interna as international travel picks up, more and more airlines are now getting back to flying, particularly A330s. Remember, I mean, Rolls dominates the A330 market. Uh, they've got a huge installed base there, including in China. And um, 
you're starting to see all of those aircraft being used much more intensively. And lo and behold, Rolls is making a great deal of money out of it. So a really, you know, from, from the aero engine companies that are getting it right, and Safran um, uh, was actually up 6%, um, you know, largely trailing uh, GE in that respect, the aero engines that get it right are doing an incredibly good job and making a great deal of money at the moment. So that's probably the most important thing. The other one that I would highlight there, because it was a very, very odd reaction uh, in many respects, um, Rheinmetall. Rheinmetall lost, or rather they were deselected from, the huge Australian contract of competition for infantry fighting vehicles, Land 400 Phase 3. Um, Hanwha of Korea uh, has been um, uh, down-selected for that. A year and a half ago, this would have been an existential contract for Rheinmetall. Share price, I think if, we'd, you know, if they'd lost the contract then, share price would have been, been down 10 to 15%. Last week, um, it was uh, actually down 1%. And that just shows you how things have changed. Now they have got so much business uh, in ammunition, in armoured vehicles, in less armoured vehicles, in trucks, air defence systems, particularly you know, as a result of Ukraine, losing an Australian IFE contract, nobody even blinks anymore. Um, that's the difference that the Ukraine uh, war has made. But big theme in Europe, huge volatility. Stocks that have had good results have performed very, very well indeed. The others certainly have not. Um, we're we're going to go to earnings uh, in, in just a second. But Richard, uh, just a real uh, interesting series of stories about air travel uh, that despite soaring prices, which we've been talking about uh, on this program, ever crappier uh, service, uh, unfortunately, flight cancellations uh, or flights that have been delayed only to leave early, uh, leaving behind uh, passengers. Uh, who often receive, uh, you know, no compensation from airlines or, or, or very little compensation. From your standpoint, is, is this boom cycle going to be continuing and bringing ever bigger airplanes back into service? You know, it kind of mirrors the broader economy. Everyone's been concerned about that uh, horrible landing followed by stagflation or whatever. Uh, well, here we have, you know, uh, the cycle that just keeps going. And there doesn't appear to be any slowdown, despite uh, considerably higher costs. There's some softening there, but boy, they've been getting super high. And yet growth continues. We're only just about 5%, 6% down from 2019. Uh, so things are really strong. And, you know, what's kind of interesting is that discretionary is leading the way so much so. Uh, Shout out to my colleague, Martha Neubauer, posted something in LinkedIn about there was a measurable uptick in traffic, I believe, in the Denver region, purely attributable to the Taylor Swift concert. And, you know, what's kind of interesting <laughs> is that's as discretionary as it gets. Come on, a concert, right? And also, this is the same generation that was purportedly following Greta Thunberg towards, you know, never flying again. Here they are flying for a Taylor Swift conference, a concert. Okay. You know, I can't help but wonder whether the whole this generation is flying less story uh, for environmental reasons has been somewhat oversold. And everyone's been racing to lower their long term air travel outlook growth rates, partly because of this fear. It doesn't appear to be happening at all. Young people are out there flying for whatever experience. I say this neither approvingly or disapprovingly. It's just a commentary on how strong the cycle is. No matter what fears there are over business travel, discretionary travel, really solid. Uh, it is uh, it is interesting because I've been doing a, a lot of travel and I see young people all over the uh, cabin, whether in the very front of the cabin or or in the back of the cabin. So, it, so anecdotally, it would seem uh, as though uh, you know, as much uh, as uh, it is important to listen, certainly to what Greta Thunberg and a younger generation has to say about climate change, since the world is kind of burning up 
in part because of climate change, uh, it is uh, it is certainly interesting that people continue to travel because at the end of the day, they've been cooped up. They want to go uh, catch up for travel lost and and what have you. Uh, a word, uh, a quick word from our sponsors. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. I'm going to ask two broad theme questions, and then we're going to drill deep uh, because I think uh, North. Northrop and the uh, geared uh, turbofan uh, deliver, and as well as uh, want to get Sash's take on uh, some very big transactions, uh, both by Talos and uh, Safran uh, that bear uh, discussion. Ron, walk us through sort of, you know, right as you walk through earnings, what were some of the interesting elements uh, of them, right? We've heard both from Airbus and from Boeing in terms of production rate. Uh, Richard, certainly want to get your uh, sense on that. But walk us through what some of the big uh, themes were, aside from next generation air dominance and uh, geared turbofan. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a challenging task to do because they suck most of the air <laughs> out of the room. That being said, however, um, I think y- y- you have to pay attention to you know Boeing's quarter. Um, they did generate a lot of cash. now. Some of that was related to inventory reversal. Some of that was related to advanced payments on uh, aircraft orders. Um, but that was something the market wanted to see. Uh, and they were reasonably constructive about 737 rates going the right direction, meaning up. Uh, and uh, same, same thing with 787. That being said, you know, with all the goodness on the commercial side of the business, the defense side of the business has still been very, very, very challenged. Uh, and you know that seems like that's going to be a work in progress for quite some time. Now, probably one of the more fascinating things with Boeing, and this has been the case for ever since I've been doing this job, so quite quite a t- quite a while. Um, most people look at Boeing as a, as a commercial aerospace company. They don't tend to look as a defense company unless something you know dramatically good or bad happens in that business relative to where that business is right now. All right, so if the business immediately turned around, investors would recognize it. If it immediately got a lot worse, rec- investors would recognize it. But generally speaking, you know, they, they think about it as a, as a commercial business, and and things there seem to be moving in the right direction for them. Um, you know, largely because of the strength of of, of the cycle. Um, I, I'd say that, and then I, I think another uh, subtext of what's going on in this quarter. Um, you know, and, and I think Sash might be able to reflect a little bit on this. Um, when Dassault came out and talked about their deliveries, and I think that was last week, they were softer than I think people were expecting. So they're coming into this quarter, there was some concern that you know business jet demand you know might might really be softening. And what we saw, and part of the reason you saw you saw Textron up as much as you did, and um, uh, General Dynamics closed the week up almost three and a half percent, you know, well above the S and P. And a big part of that was you know both of those businesses recorded. Uh, book book to bill of at least on a dollar basis of 1.3 and uh, for Gulfstream better than that 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 included some of their aftermarket business so just pure new jet sales were probably closer to maybe 1.5 or 1.6 that we're seeing continued demand in the business jet market that even though that market has been uh, normalizing it seems like it's normalizing back to maybe a more normal growth trajectory as opposed to normalizing to shrinking or whatever whatever you want to call it so i think you know that was w- a welcome piece of news in the quarter uh, and then maybe maybe finally um one of the, the things we're, we're starting to see although we only had two companies report this week we'll have more next week and in the following weeks on the services side Booz Allen reported yesterday and they had spectacular top line growth it was in, in the mid-teens um good hiring 
um, and, and uh, KBR reported this week as well. So on the services side of the business, it seems like things are really starting to pick up, which makes sense, right? I mean, services tend to experience pickups in, in defense outlays and security outlays before the big primes, but they're finding people and they're getting there. Um, so I think that's a, a, maybe a third interesting point that, and we really are seeing you know, an inflection, I think, in outlays and defense top line. And you're, you're really seeing it first at the services companies, but it's like we mentioned at Northrop Grumman, um, it's, it was a good example of what's starting to flow through to the primes too. Sash, uh, give us a sense from uh, a European standpoint. Obviously, we saw Airbus numbers. Um, you know, Hensolt is in the group. Uh, you know, Safran. Then um, kind of take it away in any direction you want to go. Yeah. Okay. So look, I mean, Airbus. Airbus was um, was perfectly good, but nothing terribly spectacular. Um, commercial aircraft numbers were a little bit better than our forecasts. Helicopters, defense and space a bit worse, but just nobody cares about those two divisions at the moment. So um, uh, everything is focused on uh, commercial aircraft. Two things really came out of the, uh, the Airbus call. One, the company is now just targeting a, a monthly production rate for the A320 family of 75 aircraft a month. Um, effectively by the end of 2026. Previously, they had an interim target of 65 a month um, next year, and they've dropped that. The cynic in me says they've dropped that because it's much easier to, um, uh, you know, if you don't have a target uh, that uh, you might just miss. Um, actually, what you know, what Airbus say for the record is um, that was a target they set just after COVID because what that was doing was saying we'll get back to what we did before covid and now they're actually focused on the on the big picture the, the you know the big target 75 a month fine crack on um uh but you know the most reassuring bits in many respects were just they said no change to their guidance they're going to deliver 720 aircraft this year um they hope make um operating profits of about six billion euros free cash flow about half that actually free cash flow they should do a ton better than that um i think they're they're low-balling the big risk, though, and we come back to this when we talk about the gear turbofan, is that, yeah, they might well do their this year's deliveries, but they acknowledged that uh, delivery rates for 2024, 2025 just are not, you know, they're not as confident about that, given that one of their major engine suppliers doesn't seem, seem to be able to make uh, dependable engines. So, you know, we'll see. But net, you know, Airbus actually ended, ended the week up a bit, and that was fine. Hensolt, actually very dull. Hensolt is a real flywheel effect company. Um, it's got uh, four times uh, backlog cover. You know, it's got this massive backlog for electronic warfare systems, uh, new radar for the Eurofighter, electronic intelligence aircraft and so forth. But there was just no signs in the first half of this year of any sort of Ukraine effect. Uh, the results were actually pretty dull um, by comparison. Safran were good. That was the, that's the, 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 you know, the civil engine spares effect. We'll come back to the acquisitions in a minute. Um, uh, so it was very, very, very mixed. But I would say overall, particularly given Rolls-Royce's pre-announcement, the engine companies are doing better than the non-engine companies. They are, they're the ones which this half uh, were, were blowing the lights out, with the exception of clearly RTX and, and, and its uh, compatriots. Um, and, but Airbus, you know, if Airbus can deliver this year's guidance, that would be good. But really all eyes on 2024 and 2025 now. And Sash, uh, really quick, Richard, uh, stand by one second because I want to get to sort of airplane production numbers and all of that. Uh, real quick, um, you know, Leonardo also posted uh, its numbers and it was 
left almost everybody scratching their heads. There was a, a very amusing sort of internal uh, exchange uh, that involved your uh, colleague, Nick Cunningham, uh, who is also one of the, you know, really the veteran analysts in this, in this business, uh, sort of expressing a little bit of befuddlement. You know, w- w- what happened and what does it ultimately mean for an enterprise that's absolutely critical, uh, not just transatlantically, but to European defense? Okay, yeah. I mean, it, the, look, any company that puts its results out at 5.30 on a Friday afternoon um, is, you know, you have to ask, why why so late? What are they trying to avoid? Um, Leonardo has got, a, you know, has got a new CEO, Roberto Cingolani, appointed by the Italian, the, the Italian government. Um, the Italian government takes a very, very close uh, view of who, who runs uh, Leonardo, Leonardo and why. So uh, it doesn't have the same degree of uh, management autonomy that even Airbus has by comparison. Um, it, it was a very, very odd call indeed. We've got to be honest about that. Um, you know, our view is that investment bankers will love what came out of this because they will almost certainly see the potential for Leonardo to return to the former status of, you know, Finn Mechanica, as he used to be called, as effectively an investment banking theme park. Um, uh, Roberto Cingolani clearly thinks they need to do a lot of deals. Uh, be very clear, we don't. Um, what worries us is that the two businesses that yeah, he identifies as being not just core, but needing to be beefed up, are two businesses that are very small and where there are uh, Leonardo's ability to uh, change the direction of those businesses to uh, strengthen them is unbelievably limited. Space, first of all, most, in fact, all of Leonardo's space assets are in the joint, joint ventures with Thales, the biggest, the, manuf- the satellite manufacturing business, Thales has got two thirds of, Leonardo's got a third. That's just not gonna change. Why, why would the French um, give up uh, two third control of uh, satellite manufacturing? It won't happen. Um, cyber. I really do despair of defense companies that say they want to expand in cyber. It's a small market, actually it doesn't grow that much. I've yet to see a large defense prime contractor where cyber added to the business in terms of the growth rate, uh, in terms of the profitability, in terms of the multiples. Happily, happy to be proved wrong on that. But so coming out and saying, you know, Leonardo, we are a, you know, we're a major military aircraft producer. Uh, we're a very, very big, you know, Europe's number two, in some cases, number one defense electronics company. But actually, the only businesses we care about is a joint venture in space and a very, very small business, uh, cyber. And by implication, the rest of these businesses aren't that good. Um, bizarre, really, really bizarre. Uh, we, we, we do worry about that. But, you know, we'll, we will see in coming quarters. Um, and there's going to be more. Uh, say you, you'll you'll get to uh, opine a little bit on cyber because we're going to talk about Talos as well. A very big three point eight billion dollar deal uh, they've uh, struck. Richard, um, I want to just sort of get your sense on the aircraft production numbers. What we heard from Airbus, what we heard from Boeing, uh, and as well what we're seeing from General Dynamics, as uh, Ron mentioned, and of course we had uh, Desso re- report as well. Kind of walk us through what all of these numbers mean. Uh, and and given where we are on travel, where it is we ought to be going with with rates, uh, supply chains allowing. Yeah, you know, I mean, things are more or less kind of sort of on track, you know, with a few uncertainties, obviously, uh, as uh, Ron Asash had mentioned, the whole issue with GTF and what that might mean for Airbus output still hasn't been completely digested, still unknown, but, you know, not bad numbers, all right, and same with Boeing, you know, decent progress, numbers should be higher. 
you know, again, market demand is not the problem. Production, supply chain, all of these things are the problem. And uh, there are worse problems to have. You very much saw this with Gulfstream. You know, Dasso sounded a little bit uncertain about broader market indicators with Gulfstream. It was, nope, full speed ahead, demand from Fortune 500 companies, absolutely fantastic. Unfortunately, supply chain, so they're going from 145 to maybe 140. Originally, I believe it was 160 uh, back some time ago. Still, look, you know, you're talking about 140 very high-end jets. Um, <laughs> that's That's fantastic. Uh, and it looks like that'll be sustained for the next couple of years. There's not a lot of softness here. So again, there are worse problems to have than supply chain, but they are definitely keeping things from growing to where they need to be. And that's particularly true in single aisle jetliners. You know, I mean, I think if, if they could flip a switch and be out and be producing 75 A320 series per month and 52 737 max Per month, I, I think the market could digest that. It might be logistically difficult in places, but uh, in terms of, uh, of demand right now, there's no question people want their jets. Wide bodies, much less so. Uh, you know, 787 and A350 are the only planes in demand. And, uh, you know, for the next couple of years, you could sustain the kind of rates they're aspiring to, but I still have my doubts that we're looking at the kind of full throttle market recovery that people have envisaged for Twin Isles. Uh, Ron, uh, and, and we are mo moving along as opposed to having everybody bite at these apples because this was a very, very big earnings week. And we have to talk about NGAD. Um, we have been uh, discussing uh, this program for uh, a long time. Uh, our whole team managed to advance the ball a little bit, understanding there were three demonstrators. Um, that had moved down to two, uh, apparently made uh, the cut. Ron, you were you were on the call uh, where Northrop Management made clear uh, where we are uh, on the company's participation in the program. Um, you know, friends were you know across all the companies have basically said, look, I mean, the unit cost of this thing is rising. It's going to be probably north or around three hundred million dollars, uh, if not more. The you know Greg Ulmer told us in Paris we're looking at a buy that's closer to the F twenty two buy in part because it's going to be such a, a, a capable airplane that's really going to push the boundaries. Everybody thought it was Lockheed and Northrop that made that screen, not Lockheed and Boeing, which apparently are the ones that moved ahead. Even though there are some who who were making that case that if anybody was going to move ahead, it was going to be Boeing. Uh, it was going to be certainly Lockheed and then and then Boeing, but others not so. Walk us through you know where we are, how this changes any. Uh, assumptions uh, and what we should expect next and what it tells us about the nature of the program. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you have to put it in a little bit of the context of the earnings call. Uh, you know, the the comment was to Kathy Warden, CEO, uh, and an analyst just asked kind of the innocent question, hey, you know, can you upgrade us, you know, update, update us on um, the uh, NGAD program you know, in the context of, you know, you're limited what you can say and so on and so forth, but, you know, good question. And, you know, Kathy said, yeah, we're not bidding it. <laughs> right. And that that was like, wow, OK. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of times on earnings calls, to be frank, you don't really find out much. But that was yeah, that's news. Right. Um, uh, and uh, something material. Now, um, you, you try to game it out. What What's that mean? Well, um, and. Kathy was very, I think, her remarks were very carefully placed that. You know, there, there's other things that they're doing and there's other tactical aircraft programs that they're interested in. Um, but, you know, they're going to take a supplier role on this. Uh, and, if, and if you look at just 
as an example, let's look at F-35. They're a supplier on F-35, right? They're a very large supplier, but they're a supplier on it. Um, and, and Northrop has been, so if, if you imagine a relationship, say it's a Lockheed program and Northrop's making a chunk of it, cool. Um, like, say, like on F-35, for example, where they're yeah, the center oh, fuselage maker until we brought yeah, Reinhardt oh, in. Yeah, yeah F, F-35, but also F-18, even though you right. know, that, you know, it was originally a, a Northrop program, but we won't go there. Um, the, um, they, they've made a good living being an important supplier on those programs. Um, so it really brings up, bubbles up, is there a, a bit of a winner's curse here? If you remember, Northrop did back away from Tanker. Northrop did back, back away from the Air Force Trainer Program, which have both been proven to be uh, you know, gigantic losers for Boeing, at least in the short to medium term. Um, so we'll see how they play out much longer term. But um, So Northrop has been careful about that. Northrop has been kind of skewered by the street on the LRIP production fixed costs. We might not make money. We might lose money on LRIP on B-21. Um, so and there's probably a, an acuter sensitivity around, all right, we want to bid something that might not be economically favorable for whatever reason, volumes, costs, so on and so forth. Maybe we just want to be a supplier. And maybe something like FAXX, the replacement of the F-18, is a better place for us to play. Um, probably higher volume, probably lower cost. And oh, by the way, we do have a legacy there, right? I mean, you know, the, you know, the, the Grumman side of the house did the F-14. Um, we've got a strong relationship, you know, going all the way back on, you know, the, the F-18, F-17. So we are, uh, you have a, a legacy with the Navy that maybe that's just a better place to, you know, you know, put all our, our chips, uh, when you look at the scope of what's going on in the tactical aircraft world. Um, I, I would, uh, say that even though there were some who were interpreting that, you know, Boeing, uh, was out and, and reflected in some of our earlier conversations, uh, you know, uh, friends at Boeing without saying anything, right. I mean, the hard part about this is nobody will say anything about NGAD, which is what's particularly interesting about cat, or let me put it this way. If you're in it, you don't say anything about NGAD. Maybe, maybe that's the way, uh, to, uh, put it. Um, but, but my, you know, my, what do we my say? My don't count is us out is what Boeing would would say to us, right? Like just just in general, don't count us out. But my fear is this, right? Having actually you know been there um, when kind of F thirty five went down, um, and the how do I say it? The skill base was much deeper at the company, particularly in St. Louis, because of the heritage of the McDonald um, you know legacy there. It's a shadow of what it once was. Um, and if you look at T7A, the only part of it, I mean, a lot of it arguably is a Saab airplane. So if you're really going to do this, this, this next generation, super capable machine, it does make you worry. Are you biting off more than you can chew, given kind of where you are today in that world? Um, so so we'll see. But, um, you know, given how there's a cloak over everything, it's hard, it's, it's hard to you know, kind of be precise. But just sort of knowing what's happened to the engineering workforce, particularly on the tactical aircraft aircraft side of uh, what was once McDonnell Douglas, now Boeing, you really do have to scratch your head. Do, do you think, uh, and, and Richard, I'm going to come to you uh, in just a second uh, on this. Do you think that there could be where there wasn't on F-35, that there could be kind of a leader follower thing? I mean, I don't get any sense that the Air Force is going to allow somebody to buy into this. Um, you know, we, we saw with Flora and a couple of other competitions, the government is willing to pay more money if it is assured that it is going to get the capability that it wants, right? I think, you know, it's very unlikely that Boeing is going to be able to do that all over again 
uh, and and have the kind of the customer go along with it because it got burned on KC forty six, it got burned on T seven. Um, I mean, ultimately, do you think that there could be a leader follower kind of approach to this, where there there I mean, could there, be I mean, an accommodation? I mean, there, I mean, there could be. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, right? I mean, we, we really don't know. But I think something that's important to consider, um, and this kind of goes back to the the Flora decision. Um, and this, you know, I had a conversation with somebody uh, at the army, basically saying, "Hey, you guys know you didn't buy a helicopter; um, you bought a turboprop, sort of." And and their, you know, their remark to me was, "Yeah, we know, we don't care." And I go, "What do you mean? How can that be?" And you know, the you know, the bid was higher, and he said, "You know, it wasn't just about capability, but it was about life cycle cost." Right. And you know, if you look at the life cycle cost on F thirty five, and all the bits and pieces of the system, of the data, of the logistics that are, you know, captive to Lockheed proprietary stuff that on Flara, my understanding is that wasn't the case on the Bell bid, that it's far more open system. And because of that, the, the, the life cycle cost of the machine will be far less than one where it's more closed and controlled by the contractor. So even though you're paying more up front for the, the machine itself, um, if you have a more open architecture where the logistics and support can be, you know, maybe you know, bid more competitively or sourced differently or internally managed by, um, you know, the, the military itself, the light, you could, I think, make a credible argument that the life cycle cost would be significantly lower. So if you're paying twice as much or whatever, who knows, for the machine up front, kind of who cares because over the life of the thing, it'll be less. So right. can you imagine a scenario where, um, say Boeing structures a bid that says, "Hey, all right, we'll do that." You know, we, you know, we we you know, we we kind of learned on on, on Flara what's going on. Um, let's do that. Um, you could imagine a bid where Lockheed doesn't do that, um, and maybe you could have a winner in a you know in in that direction where they don't under under bid the machine itself and can make a reasonable return on the machine. Um, it's just over its life cycle, it just wouldn't return as much. But you know, it's in a sense that's almost a better deal because you're making money up front and you're not waiting right. for this aftermarket to play out, particularly on a limited batch of machines. And and, and, and it is going to be a limited batch, so I don't know how leader follower works. Although it does look like there's going to be quite a lot of work, uh, whether it's on the Navy side with FAXX, whether it's uh, you know, and there, there's no reason. You know what I mean? I mean, there are some people who are like, well, you know, that'll be a Grumman Northrop set aside. I don't know why it would be a Northrop Grumman set aside. Boeing is really the, the heart of the Navy, it, you know, lives in St. Louis uh, and, uh, you know, and and yeah, Northrop, but not really on the combat aviation side of uh, the, the business. Uh, right. I mean, more on the E2 uh, uh, enter enterprise. Uh, Richard, kind of your your sense on on all of this. And, and of course, there's CCA as well. Uh, right. Let me ask you this, Richard, just, just to start off with really quickly. We're assuming that this is Lockheed, Boeing, and uh, uh, Northrop Grumman are the competitors. Could there be somebody else involved in this that we may not actually be thinking of somehow? I doubt it. You know, High-end combat aircraft, of course, have the highest barriers entry of anything ever. Um, you know, it, it, <laughs> I just, there's nothing, there's nothing dreamt of in my, you know, universe, I think, that... That could really be different. CCA, of course, you know, you can't rule out a, you know, Kratos, General Atomic, someone like that. It's conceivable, but that would be part of a broader constellation of air vehicles or something and doesn't resemble 
NGAD FAXX. I think we're just looking at the three. And my interpretation is that, yeah, you know, for reasons Ron laid out, it, it, it looks like Lockheed Martin is now going to be NGAD. Now, all of, you know, both of these programs, like all high-end combat aircraft, are going to be two-thirds, one-third affairs, you know, just like the FA-18, just like F-22, like F-35 to a certain extent. Um, you know, to me, the most interesting aspect here is the whole Northrop Grumman, what does it mean from their standpoint? I think it showed a lot of discipline. I think it was a smart strategy. You know, to a certain extent, industrial policy is kind of the Schrodinger's cat of the whole enterprise. You know, I mean, is it alive? Is it dead? You know, we've never been able to prove it exists as a key perform as a key factor in contract determination. But hey, it, it probably plays some kind of role. And they're doing B-21. They've got their strength in FAXX, you know, even not just F-14 and FA-8 and, and their 40% and FA-18 and whatever else, and, and A-6 and, and, and E-2. But, you know, I would also point out that it was their their team on A-12, A-T-A should have won. They were the one who submitted the, and it was Northrop Grumman separately, but working together that came up with the bid that was honest. It was $6.5 rather than the notorious lowball, um, you know, McDonnell Douglas uh bid, which was, you know, and with general dynamics, which I which I think was 4.5 and and no way it was going to work. So I think they think they've got a great chance in FAXX. They're already doing B21. Given all their stealth drone work, no question that they'll have a key role in CCA of some kind. Why push it? You know, why keep going? Now, will the Air Force be a little bit mad at them for not going after NGED? You know, I can't rule that out. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure that if they didn't get some kind of all clear, some kind of, yeah, we're OK with you not bidding, they, they you know, I'm, I'm sure they got that or at least some kind of reasonable feeling that it wouldn't result in disaster. Could, could this have been the result of a demonstrator that just didn't perform as expected? And so, the, you know, their decision not to bid might have been an easier decision. Yeah. Hey, the other you know, guys were just, here and here and we were over here. Okay. Yeah, not just from a performance standpoint, but even just from a cost standpoint, because if you remember, they were part of TX. They were one of the companies in TX, and they were the only one, I believe, to walk away. They said, yes. you know, we, you know, we're we're doing this it kind of looks a lot like an F twenty or something. You know, it's just it, it was it, it was West Bush just, decided it, it's it's just too big of a lift for us to get yeah. to where it was going to be. Right. It's too big a lift and it's going to cost too much to build. And we're going to lose money on it. So we're just going to walk away. So could that have happened with NGAD here? Yes, conceivably, and especially the whole we don't want to buy into the program mantra. So I, I think it looks like smart strategy to me. Um, you know, and again, it probably again, Schrodinger's cat industrial policy doesn't necessarily mean a better chance with FAXX and CCA. Maybe, maybe not. Is the cat alive? Is the cat dead? I don't know, but it, it probably helps. That's on balance. I want to get to a geared uh, turbofan in a moment, but uh, I, I, I have to bring uh, Sash into the discussion briefly to talk about uh, M&A uh, in uh, Europe, and then we can finish it up with uh, geared uh, turbofan. Um, Sash, we saw, uh, obviously, Safran acquire uh, control and actuator business uh, from Collins uh, Aerospace Company, seeing that as an important franchise uh, and certainly improving, you know, everything from its competitiveness to its sustainability and, and, and long-term 
um, you know, capabilities. Obviously, you need good controls if you're going to do ever more sophisticated uh, aircraft systems. And, and then you had uh, Talas spend $3.8 billion on your favorite business, a cyber business, uh, when they brought uh, Imperva. Um, walk us through what you make of these strategies and how sensible you think they are. Yeah. Um, so in fact, here, I mean, here we have the two, really two of the bigger uh, French aerospace and defense companies, Thales and, uh, and Safran, clearly Airbus is, is way bigger still, um, who in the last two, two and a half weeks have committed over six billion dollars, uh, probably over six billion euros to uh, some pretty major uh, acquisitions. They, they Both companies talk about the acquisitions they're doing as being bolt-ons. But I think once you're spending six, six billion plus, um, that is pushing the definition of bolt-on uh, quite aggressively. Um, Safran, the, you know, the Collins actuation business, why did they buy it? They bought it because it was available. They bought it because, I mean, Safran has been talking for literally years, um, pro probably 10, year, 10 years about uh, the um, electric aircraft and how they want to get more and more into electric aircraft. And also, um, although this is something they talk about less directly, uh, they do need to balance out the incredibly successful aero engine business, the majority of which is in um, collaboration with, with GE, the CFM, uh, CFMI business. Um, they need to balance that out with uh, other assets. Um, the uh, acquisition of Zodiac, the insurance business, was not a good one, still isn't a good one. Um, but uh, actuation, landing gear, uh, nacelles and so forth has been a pretty decent business for, for them. And I think they, they felt they wanted to do more. Um, Alice. Uh, buying Imperva, uh, you know, I commented earlier on about this with regard to Leonardo, and I, I you know, hold with what we say. Um, cyber businesses sounds terribly exciting, I think, because in the back of far too many people's minds, myself included, we think, oh, cyborg, gosh, science fiction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It, it tends to be a GDP plus business, should make decent margins, should make good cash returns, because cyber businesses do not tend to have. Um, very much in the way of uh, costs of goods sold. Um, but here's the rub. They cost a great deal of money. Uh, Talis is paying six times sales and 17 times EBIT uh, for Imperva. And the hope is that at the end of this, about 10, 12% of the company's overall revenues will be cyber and that business will grow faster than the rest of Talis. Well, that's a big ask given that we're in a defense upcycle, but you know, perhaps that's possible. And B, that it will... Uh, contribute to a higher multiple for Talis overall. I think that's an even bigger ask. Um, let's bring the Talis and the uh, Saffron acquisitions together, because I, I think there is a common theme here. And what it is, is that I think most managements, but European managements in particular, really do dislike doing share buybacks if there are alternatives. The problem with the share buyback, uh, returning um, surplus capital to investors, is that it goes out of the door and you, management, don't see it again. And your company is just a little bit smaller uh, and no management likes that. So what they're doing is they are, you know, looking at the prospect of surplus cash and saying, well, let's go and spend it on something, my parentheses, anything, because that's gotta be better than just giving it back and, and we don't see it again. I, it's very hard to see that as being a, you know, genuinely good motivation for doing deals, but it's a very common thread uh, at the moment. And it's something investors need to be, be aware of. Um, but, you know, do we go out and mark um, either company up, Safran for being more electric, um, Thales for being more cyber? No, I think, you know, the jury's out, particularly on, on the, uh, the Thales acquisition. But from Safran's point of view, uh, 
it may or may not work. Of you is the share price is going to be driven very much by the aero engines business and how well CFMI performs. Um, we, we have about uh, five minutes uh, in which to discuss geared uh, turbofan uh, run. Uh, start us off uh, a concern, something Greg Hayes mentioned uh, in uh, his RTX uh, call, the first time the company is being called RTX during an earnings call uh, as it rebranded in the wake of, or at the Paris Air Show. Um, in terms of uh, the geared turbofans, powdered metal, rare condition, there could be degradation. 1,200 engines that will need uh, accelerated inspection. What does that mean for what was seen as a, and is still seen as a breakthrough uh, power plant? Uh, power plant. Richard, your take, and then Sash, you bring it home. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly unwelcome news. Um, and it was on top of you know, the other issues that the engine has experienced, right? So you know, the engine over its lifetime so far has seen a litany of issues. Interestingly enough, none of them with the gear, right? And if you remember when right. Pratt really started talking to the world on this, it was, you know, the gear was the point of contention. Uh, GE Aviation at the time was coming out saying metal on metal won't work. Um, gear seems to be working just fine. Um, but other systems around it, particularly in the hot section of the engine, have been having issues. Combustors, in this case, it's a, it's a disc. Um, the, the unfortunate timing of all this uh, worked out that, RTX held a investor meeting at the Paris Air Show. They did individual meetings with investors at, at, at Paris, and, and none of this came up. Um, turns out it was a known issue on the B2500. Um, mm. My sense is that they were kind of looking through um, what they have to in terms of uh, engine performance and safety. And I think they thought this was going to be something that could be addressed um, when the engines came in on the normal maintenance cycle and um, something happened uh, when they were doing a safety council meeting and their safety council came out and said, Hey, you know what? Um, we got to look at this closer. Um, and the way we had thought about handling this before, we, we can't do that. We have to do something different. Um, so I think the moral compass is definitely in the right direction. Um, you know, they're, they're, more, they're trying to be you know, as safe as possible. Um, you know, they've worked with the regulator in the U.S. and I think with the regulator in Europe, and it seems like they're on board. Um, interesting point. Uh, we'll see how China reacts to this. Um, and the Chinese regulator, uh, as everybody knows, has been more independent uh, acting since the, in the wake of the, the MAX um, catastrophe. Uh, and so we'll see how the Chinese regulator deals with it. So there's a risk there that they might do something different. Um, but it, it, it comes down to there's 200 engines that they've identified, although they haven't said what you know, the specifications of those engines were that made them be identified, are going to come in on um, uh, an accelerated inspect inspection of this disc. They have to take the disc off, off the engine, and the engine off the wing, disc out of the engine, and then do a, uh, a, uh, a, a, a sonography, you know, a, a an acoustic um, um, examination of the disc that takes time uh, and then after the first 200 engines they're going to go and come back and figure out what they're going to do with the rest of the thousand and how that's going to be taken care of can it be on normal maintenance or not so on and so forth uh, in the quarter they basically took 500 million that would be 500 million dollars for those first 200 engines um, investors of course extrapolated that out to oh my god there's going to be 3 billion if you do them all that that's probably not right, right? The, the, this, the, the unfortunate reality of this is the timing has been very quick. It's been happening in almost real time. 
Um, and there's just a lot of uncertainty around it. And um, this just demonstrates how you know, the, the, the market broadly really doesn't like uncertainty and particularly on a product that's had sort of a chain of events happening. And this, you know, from an investor perspective, kind of coming out of left field. Richard, uh, your sense uh, and take on impact and then Sash, uh, bring it home. Yeah, you know, complete agreement with Ron, of course, you know, I just don't think it's that big a deal in and of itself with three complications. One is that, yeah, you know, I mean, it, there have been a whole bunch of issues that and, and that I think in, in investors' minds and everyone's minds, it, um, you know, it. <laughs> when does this end? When do the problems end? And uh, two, it also sort of feeds into the original narrative that GE had put forth about Leap One versus GTF saying, you know, we, we understand their fondness for a gearbox, but in terms of improving thermal efficiency in the modern turbofan, we still have a lot of work to do and we're going to do that work let them work on their gearbox and you know that that kind of that that prediction seems to have worked out uh clearly there is some work to do uh on both the manufacturing and perhaps the design side the uh third thing of course is how many engines need to be diverted from due production away from airbus and towards the creation of a spares pool so they can do these engine swap outs for the uh the you know, the affected airlines. So those are the three complications. But in general, you know, we've looked at market share over time through all the problems the GTF has has had and no impact whatsoever. And they're still booking pretty good orders. You know, there's still about, you know, it's roughly, it's one, it's, it's roughly 30% GTF, 40% uh, GE Saffron, and then 30% we don't know yet, but it's shocking how much that is changing. And the switching costs for an airline to go from one to the other, pretty significant. So we just don't see that changing. Sash, uh, bring it home. So I, I very much agree with um, Ron. I think the thing that was the real surprise in all this, because you know stuff goes wrong with engines. Uh, that's the nature of these beasts. Most of them are now pushing their Darwinian limits in terms of um, you know, uh, thermal stresses and, and pressures and, and so forth. But the thing that really did surprise a lot of investors and us was Pratt and its partner MTU both individually gave very, very, very clear, very consistent, pretty positive um, uh, views of, about the GTF program at the Paris Air Show, uh, focused on the existing upgrades to the uh, geared turbofan, how they're you know, 60% of the way uh, through doing what's called the block uh, the block D upgrade, and then it's the uh, GTF advantage, you know, all that stuff. Um, and so, you know, we thought, and I think any investor who had listened to either of those presentations would have thought, yeah, GTF's had some big problems, but you know, everything's okay uh, now. And then all, some, somewhere between the Paris Air Show and now, something clearly, you know, there, somebody rang a very, very large bell uh, just saying, whoa, we, we've, got, well, uh, we've got to stop this. And it, it does suggest to us um, that uh, the issues that they're getting coming out of the engines now have turned out to be significantly worse than they'd expected. I think it's a surprise to me that both Pratt, Pratt and its partners have clearly known that there were problems with uh, powder metal components, powder metal discs for a very, very long time. I mean, MTU said for years, but effectively they just hoped they could, they could get away with it. Um, and that just suggests to me that, that you know, the parts of the engines we shouldn't, we shouldn't worry about have actually been 
on the edge in terms of uh, some of the uh, design and manufacturing parameters. Airbus called it a, a quality escape, which I think is the most fantastic euphemism. We're going to use that one extensively from here because it's just so good. Um, but uh, you know, as quality escapes go, this one is probably going to affect Airbus production through 2025. And we think, that, you know, as a consequence, the risk is that Airbus's production is going to be absolutely at the bottom end of what market expectations would be otherwise, because they can't rely on getting all of the GTF engines they need, because every time perhaps had a grounding of, of GTF end or, you know, a, a problem with GTF engines, they've had to divert, uh, divert a, a ton more engines into the spares pool, whether they like it or not. And that really is the long term consequence of this. I mean, it basically means that Airbus is going to probably underperform in production terms. And this is why that rate 75 looks aspirational uh, to us. Um, and it gives Boeing a little bit of time to catch up. So here's the question. The other company that had a really big quality escape uh, was Rolls-Royce with the Trent 1000. With the Trent 1000, that pretty much kill killed the program. Trent 1000 is a minority player on the Boeing 787 now. Um, Pratt is lucky in that CFM is uh, GE Safran is probably capacity constrained on narrowbody engines. So there is a bit of market share they might get, but not a lot. And Richard said, you know, switching costs are very, very high. Um, and narrowbody customers are really do abhor the idea of there being a, a dominant producer for the uh, for the uh, for the AC20 Neo. But in other respects, if they sort of keep on having problems like this. It worries me that, you know, this might go the way of the Trent 1000. And we think, um, you know, Pratt and his partners have really got to be careful of that because uh, they can't afford to keep on having problems like this. Guys, uh, thanks very much. Uh, great discussion, uh, as always. Hope you guys have a terrific uh, weekend and a great week. Look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Vago. Always a pleasure. Yeah, enjoyed it a lot, Vago. Thank you. Uh, it wouldn't be Sunday unless we were all uh, together. And thanks so very much to our audience for joining us. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible every week. We look forward to having you all join us tomorrow for the start of our week and a conversation with Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses to take a look at the latest in uh, Russia's war on Ukraine and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Thanks very much and have a great day.